all of the conversations you have in the US ripple out and kind of affect what's happening internationally, but also how international innovations ripple back in. One of the interesting findings of my work in the last five years was at real times of need when the US during the Trump years was like, oh my God, is Trump going to go to war with North Korea? Move on actually looked for international allies and actively said, we need help and support to try and stop Trump if this happens. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Nina Hall, is an assistant professor of international relations at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Her most recent book is Transnational Advocacy in the Digital Era. Nina spent at least five years researching MoveOn and its analog organizations that progressive activists have built around the world. We talked about how she came to this interest and what she's learned along the way. It's actually a good follow-up episode to my earlier interview with Dave Karp, who focused his research on MoveOn in the U.S. context. Nina is well worth your listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Nina Hall at Johns Hopkins. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Nina, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Nice to meet you, Nathaniel. I'm Nina Hall. I'm a New Zealander. I've been based in Europe for the last 12 years. I work currently at Johns Hopkins SAIS at their European campus in Bologna, and I teach international relations. And previous to that, I was working actually in Berlin at the Hurdy School of Governance. And previous to that, I was completing a PhD at Oxford, or a DFIL as they call it. And in the last five plus years, I've been studying organizations like Move On and a bunch of their sister organizations around the world and just finished a book called Transnational Advocacy in the Digital Era. What's different about you as a guest than the bulk of my guests so far is that international focus. I think it's going to bring a really useful perspective to the conversation that we have about U.S. politics and digital advocacy here. Before we get too far into that, I want to just understand your career a little bit better. Where did you grow up originally? You seem to have been in a variety of countries. And it's a great question because I think my background informed the book that I've written, the book that we'll get on to talk about. So yeah, I grew up in Wellington, New Zealand, which is known as the windiest city in the world, windier than Chicago. I'm here today, actually, and it's, it's pretty still. It's pretty nice. I, from a young age, was pretty interested in, in the rest of the world. As your listeners will appreciate, New Zealand's quite far away, 12 hours to the west coast of the US and two long intercontinental flights to get to Europe. 
And at age 17, I actually went on an AFS exchange to Italy and spent my last year of high school in a small town in Sicily learning Italian and playing Italian card games <laughs> and came back to New Zealand to do undergraduate, studied politics, got involved in campus politics. I was an active member of, of the Greens on campus. Did you grow up speaking multiple languages or one language? I mostly spoke English. In New Zealand, our second official language is Māori. That's the indigenous language, and we certainly learned that at primary school, but not to a high level of fluency, just learning a few words. And then when I went to Italy and lived in Sicily, I, I learned Italian and I learned French as well at high school. What did your parents do? My dad works in the arts world, so he runs arts festivals, and my mum works in consultancy across the public and private sector. So going down the academic path was kind of innovation in the family a bit? Uh, slightly, although I have a lot of uncles and aunts who are academically inclined and have academic positions. Yeah. What made you want to go to Italy? That seems like a maybe a pivotal trip for you and time. What led you there? So I guess a bit of background for your listeners is New Zealand being quite remote there's always been a high degree of interest in living overseas and traveling. And I always grew up with this desire to learn another language and to be immersed in another culture. And I had been to Italy as a 12-year-old with my mom, and I loved being in Europe and was like, oh, I want to learn more about this world. So for me, going to Italy as a 17-year-old was like, I want to understand other worlds and languages and become fluent. And certainly, Living in a small town where no one else spoke English, not even the English high school teacher really understood what I was saying with my thick New Zealand accent, meant that I became fluent in Italian reasonably quickly. Also, I think it's worth noting a lot of the sort of political awakenings, like issues like the refugee crisis in Europe, weren't what they are today. But there were certainly already in Sicily people washing up on the shores of the south who would immigrate from or flee northern Africa. So I think for me, it kind of opened up my world, both linguistically, but also politically, becoming aware of a whole lot of things that weren't necessarily issues in New Zealand. Why politics as the course of study as an undergraduate? I had considered doing science. I was also really interested in biology. But living in Italy for a year made me much more curious about political philosophy. I actually studied philosophy at high school in Italy. It's something that they do there that we didn't do in New Zealand. And I'd always been quite interested in history and I'd taken history at school in New Zealand. And I had some great first year lecturers in like political philosophy and Latin American politics. And I just really enjoyed it. And I wanted to learn more about the world. So it all just clicked into place, really. Did you have like a senior thesis or something that culminated your undergrad experience? Right. So in New Zealand, I did do a master's thesis. So I did an undergraduate and plus then I did a one year long big research project and I spent time in East Timor. For those of listeners who don't know, there was a big battle for East Timorese independence from Indonesia. And I was really interested in the period that happened immediately after they got independence and the fight for women's equality because East Timor actually had a really high proportion of women in their parliament, surprisingly high, over 25%. And I kind of wanted to understand and explain why that was. Like it was higher than the percentage of women in parliament in Australia at the same time. And it led me to actually go to East Timor and interview Jose Ramos Horta, who Nobel Peace Prize winner was the president at the time, and interview a bunch of women activists. And that to me was such an exciting research project because it was like, why have we got young democracies so successful 
And actually, one of the things that I found out was that the UN, rather than being a real collaborator and enabler of that, at times had tried to block women's fight to get a quota for the number of women in political parties leading up to that first election. So there was quite a messy story about who were kind of the forces for women's rights and who were sort of blocking some of the reforms that Timorese women wanted. Why were there more women there than places like Australia in office? Yeah, so, I mean, there is a conflation of different reasons for it. One was around that time in the 1990s, there was a really strong push internationally for women to, to take up political office. There was the Beijing conference in, in the 90s, which was an international conference for women's rights. And a number of Timorese women who were in the diaspora, who'd either fled you know, Timor living in Australia or, or Portugal, went along to that Beijing uh, conference. I believe Hillary Clinton was also there. So this was like a bunch of people from around the world trying to prioritize women's rights in many different contexts. The UN also had come up with UN Security Resolution 1325, which was the first time the Security Council prioritized women in sort of peace and conflict contexts. And one of the flow-on effects of that was that the UN was more conscious about how it was enabling women to have a voice in post-conflict states. So there was the UN importantly in Timor was the administration, was the government at the early phase of its independence when in 1999 it, it, it became a separate state from Indonesia. So the sort of confluence of international factors and then a really strong women's rights movement in Timor, and that was what I was most interested in, was to understanding the interaction between these sort of international forces, the international women's movement and the domestic women's movement that had been strong throughout the fight for independence because women had had a strong voice in groups like Fretland, the army and political party that was fighting for independence in Timor. What came next for you after the Masters? Oh, there's a real mix of things. I kind of was extremely curious to see and learn a lot more about the UN's role in the world. So I did a couple of internships, one with the UN Department of Political Affairs in New York. And that was actually during the time that Obama was elected and the global financial crisis hit. And I was, you know, from little old New Zealand sitting in New York, which felt like the center of the world and learned a lot about, about the UN, as well as being immersed in kind of US politics at that point in time. I also spent time in Nepal and Kathmandu working as an intern at UNICEF, and they were going through a process at the time in, in Nepal of reforming or writing their, their constitution, and UNICEF was involved in pushing for children's rights. And that was also a really interesting learning curve for me. And then finally, I spent a stint in the New Zealand Foreign Service, what's called the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade. I had been part of their intake there. And so that was that was kind of interesting being inside the public service and seeing New Zealand's role internationally and understanding that a bit better. And that's an issue I still, still work on, like pushing for a more progressive New Zealand foreign policy, although from outside, not from inside. Yeah. So what year about are we up to? Yeah, so then about 2010, and that's when I, I got an opportunity to go and study at Oxford and do a PhD, and I decided that was an opportunity I didn't want to skip out on, and that's when I started my, my doctoral studies um, in, well, it was actually late 2009, the year of the Copenhagen Climate Summit, which had a big impact on my work because I you know, had maintained an interest in, in climate change and global governance around how do we regulate climate change, and I went off to, to Oxford and ended up 
asking questions about how humanitarian and development organizations, the UN system as a whole, is is engaging with climate change because there's been so much obviously emphasis on the role of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. But as we know, climate change is having an impact on humanitarian and development outcomes. So my questions were really like, how do these humanitarian institutions and development institutions um, engage with the impacts of climate change? How was Oxford as a place to work on a doctorate? It was amazing. Yeah. I went slightly nervous about it being a very bookish place where I would just sit in libraries the whole time in the cold and probably drink lots of cups of tea. And I did sit in libraries and drink cups of tea. But what I hadn't kind of appreciated before I got there is the amazing meeting of minds. Like people who go on to do incredible work, not just in the academic, but in the practitioner space. You know, I was actually just emailing a friend this morning, uh, Nanjala Nayabola. She's a Kenyan activist, writer, thinker, who's written a lot on women's movement in Kenya, but also been actively involved in it. You end up with friends from all around the world who are thinking and doing amazing, amazing things. So for me, it was a real wonderful place and really rich intellectually, but also sort of politically. To, to study. The people that I've talked to who've gone there, maybe because most of them came out of the US system, found it very challenging in terms of just the way you were expected to read a lot and and distill it and talk to someone about it. That may be more the undergraduate experience, I'm not sure, but was it a different educational type of institution than what you were used to, or was there a lot of continuity from New Zealand? I think in terms of the style of teaching, it's at least at the doctoral level, quite similar to New Zealand, and that's very hands-off. If you're doing a doctorate in the US, I know you do a two years built-in master's where you have to do your comprehensive exams, and that means you're like very well-read across the discipline, and you kind of come out with the sense of like how your piece of work fits in this big bigger picture. And in the UK, you can just dive straight into your idiosyncratic questions. And there's there's a downside to that. Like certainly now working as a professional academic, you can sometimes feel like maybe you've got some gaping holes in your background because you haven't done this kind of like two years of comprehensive. The flip side of it is there's a lot more independence to kind of go off and study and have questions and conversations with different people you're the master of your own studies and you have to kind of take charge and figure out what it is you need to know and who might help you along that journey. I had a very positive experience of it. It doesn't work for everyone. And was your dissertation then climate related? Yeah, it was in the Department of Politics and International Relations. It was an international relations and it was really a sociology of organizations. And if it came down to defining myself, I'd say that's what I do. I look at formal political organizations and try and understand the way that they work. And so I was asking questions about how UN, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, has changed over time and what role bureaucrats played versus states, because a lot of the literature has focused on states driving change because they're the ones that give money. They're the ones that sit at the executive committee and say, you know, we want you to look after refugees. Here's the money. Do it. But what my thesis and the book that came out of it showed is that the bureaucrats, the international civil servants that sit in Geneva or sit around the world actually have quite a lot of influence in shaping an agenda setting. So they were the ones who said, actually, climate change is a new issue and we need to be tackling it. We need to think about what the flow on effects are for refugee and displacement. Did you then go on the sort of job market? You went to a series of different places, but I'm not clear how your career developed. 
initially I thought I'll do the PhD and get out of academia. I'll go on and do something more practical and potentially in the UN space. I was reasonably open-minded, maybe in the NGO space. I mean, I was definitely had a few different ideas, but I think I felt I had unfinished business. I had written this big piece of work and, you know, you write it and it's a tome, but it's not published into the world. So there's like three people who read it, who you're on, on your committee and maybe some friends. And to me, I wanted to to get that piece of work out into the world. And the natural next step was a postdoc. I got a postdoc at Hertie, which is a public policy school in, in Berlin, which gave me the freedom to write and turn that work into a series of publications in a book. I did look around pretty b- broadly. So yeah, I was on like the job market. And I was very fortunate to end up in Berlin because I felt like there was a very different political conversation that opened up my eyes to different ways of thinking about everything from like privacy and activism right through to climate politics. At what point did you sort of start to notice the move on type organizations that you mentioned? Yeah. So, so far, I haven't really talked about it. The book focuses on Move On and its sister organizations, and I was not aware of them. I think I'd heard of Avaz, and I remember meeting some people who'd have been involved in Avaz. There's a lot of Australians who'd ended up in New York working at Avaz. I'd heard of a job opening, and I was kind of intrigued by the idea of kind of saving the world through online activism. It wasn't really on my radar. I'd been studying all these old school organizations that have been around for 70 years. And then I was hungry for my next research project sitting in Berlin, also a little bit unsure about my future in academia. And a friend of a friend and a, through an Australian connection told me, oh, there's this group of organizations that are meeting in Berlin for a summit and move on as part of it. And then there's this group in New Zealand called Action Station. And there's a group in Germany called Campact. And I'm like, I've never heard of all of these organizations. What are they doing? And why are such similar organizations existing in so many different countries from like Sweden to Poland, from South Africa to the US? And I basically went along to this dinner that they were having And sidled up to Ben Branzell, who set up this network called Open, and said, what are you guys doing and can I study you? (laughs) And that was the start of a much longer conversation. That sounds like a pretty big moment in in your career. What was the conversation with Ben like and what, what was your introduction to that Open Network? What made it so interesting to you? So I was fascinated because they seemed the opposite of all the UN organizations I'd been studying. Like when you go and study the UN in Geneva or New York, you know, you email in advance, you like set up an official interview time. You're often sitting outside waiting for the like security guy to let you into the building. And then you have an hour long, very professional conversation with people who tell you about this report and the strategic idea. And like these groups, it seemed to me were fast moving, picking up on issues as they were breaking I mean, this is one of the, for your listeners, kind of core defining features of all of the organizations I study is that they're rapid response, they're multi-issue, they're working on climate change one day, refugee rights the next, trade politics, LGBT, and they're member driven. Like what they did was like survey their members using digital analytics, all the things that Dave Karp has talked about in his work, the move on effect and analytic activism. And I know he was on the program earlier and it just... It was kind of, for me, fascinating to try and understand what was going on because it was so unfamiliar 
to somebody who'd been reading about international organizations. And also, I should say, I had worked on activism before. This work I'd done on Timor and the women's movement, and I'd read a lot of the intellectual kind of debates about how activism happened. And all of the debates are like, you have long sustained campaigns, right? You start a campaign for women's rights and you keep going and you stick doggedly to it. And these groups just didn't seem to be doing that. They seem to be jumping all over the place. I was like, how does this work? What's going on here? So it was a real kind of meeting of intellectual curiosity, also situated for me personally within countries that I knew quite well. There's a group like Move On in New Zealand, one in Germany, one in Italy where I've ended up living, in the UK where I had lived. So I had a a sort of personal connection as well into each of these countries and could speak the language. So I was able to study what they were doing in their own context in a way that I think maybe others hadn't been able to do before. I guess Move On came much more organically to my notice, like as it was formed, it was not the first group to use the kind of tools that they did online. It was early, but it wasn't the first. There were organizations, there were political candidates that were using tool sets going back into earlier in the 90s. So I watched Move On and I watched it like turn from an anti-impeachment organization and very entrepreneurially broaden out its techniques and tools and, and scope of interest. And then since then on the podcast, I've had like Joan Blades on, who was a founder, and I've had Anna Galland, who was a recent executive director. And I've talked to people about the history from different angles, a number of people in addition to that. To me, it never felt like this exception. It kind of felt like it built into the American political ecosystem as it went along. When you looked at these other organizations that are analogs to it, are they copying Move On or do they spring up independently in any cases? I think this is a really, really good question because obviously the U.S. is so rich in terms of its history of progressive organizing and using digital tech to do it. And Move On is a big part of that story, but it's not the only organization out there. And as you said, it's part of a broader ecosystem. So what I've done in the book is kind of ask the question, what were the ripple effects of Move On's experimenting and other organizations internationally? And essentially what happened is a bunch of activists around the world became aware of Move On or Move On-like organizations and in many cases emulated it in their own context. And what's important here is that Move On itself didn't have like a missionary going around the world and saying, this is what you should do. Although a former Move On staffer, Ben Branzell, did become a real advocate for the model. And the book looks at his role. And Ben worked initially at Move On and then at Avaz and then supported a number of organizations who said, Move On's really interesting. We want to do something like that in our country. And he would go out and help support them to find funding to understand the model. Because an important thing that I hadn't fully appreciated is it's one thing if you're in the US and you get what Move On does. If you're sitting in Poland or you're sitting in Hungary or Sweden or New Zealand, and there's no other similar organization, so they didn't really have any contemporaries to talk with. And that's why the sort of international connections became so important. So, yeah, the story is a really rich one with some activists in Australia, the UK and Canada 
learning and setting up their own model. And the German case is super interesting because it's set up quite in parallel with no personal connections. The Australians, for instance, had gone and worked a number of them in the US and so had sort of seen inside the model. Meanwhile, the Germans were going, wow, how is MoveOn so effective during the Iraq war? We should be doing something like this. And I have a really nice anecdote in the book about how two of the early founders of the German equivalent of MoveOn, it's called Campact, actually flew to the US and asked Eli Parizia if they could take the German MoveOn members, which MoveOn was like, what are we doing with Germans on our email list? And at that point, the Germans were unknown. So MoveOn decided not to give them the list. But this German Felix Kolb, who's who's the, still the founder of Campact, had actually indicated they wanted to be the German move on, even using that terminology. They went on to, you know, set up their own organization, Campact, find their own members, and are now an extremely strong organization and organize massive rallies with hundreds of thousands of people at times. It's a fascinating case, really, of activists in very different contexts trying to understand the essence of what MoveOn was doing and adapting it for their own context. To what extent over time do innovations that are happening in places like Germany and Australia come back to MoveOn? Because I would imagine that at a certain point, MoveOn's not going to stay ahead in every dimension of this kind of online engagement. Do you have a sense that they started to learn from their international peers? Completely. I would say, firstly, what happened over time is that these international peers formed a network called the Open Network. And the Open Network, which stands for Online Progressive Engagement Network, isn't actually that open as the name suggests. So it only includes organizations that follow the move-on model of being multi-issue, rapid response, uh, digital campaigning, member-driven and progressive, importantly, right? They all have to be progressive and nationally based. So groups like Avaz, which is international, or WeMove, which is the regional European version of MoveOn and not included, or some of us. Um, and these organizations meet on an annual basis, face-to-face, regularly. They hold summits. They also hold like mini summits on topics they've had like refugees. They've actually just held a summit in the Americas. So there's been Move On, Lead Now from Canada, a Mexican, Colombian, and new Brazilian organization. And in these summits, they'll share ideas about what's happening in their region or how to best frame or run campaigns on refugee rights. They'll also share tactics. They'll share tech. So Move On might hear about, say, the Swiss organization and how the Swiss are trying to campaign in three languages simultaneously because they have to, you know, Switzerland has Italian and French and German. Though also one thing I know that Move On took a lot during the Trump administration was they hadn't done so many big demonstrations because in the US, you know, what Move On's added advantage was was in online campaigning. Suddenly they were looking at Hungary and Poland and going, wow, maybe we should be learning from these countries where there are rollbacks of democracy because that's what we're seeing in the US. They were looking at Germany and the organization there, Campact, which had for a long time done massive demonstrations and going, okay, how can we do these sorts of things? So I think there are definitely a lot of examples where MoveOn has sort of broadened its horizons because obviously there's a lot going in the US. There are a lot it can learn from domestically, but there's a real richness to understanding the international and also a lot of potentials for, for collaborative campaigns. 
Yeah. You mentioned that they're all progressive, but progressive varies by country, what that exactly means. Did they converge on definitions of progressive? Did they diverge? How does that sort out? Yeah, this is a fascinating question because in setting up the network of open, they were very conscientious that they only wanted one organization per country. And I think it was partly for this reason. So there wouldn't be competition over their definition of progressive and there wouldn't be competition within a country over members. However, within the network, there was clearly differences. Some were to do with that country context and some were to do with the individuals that had set up the organization. Um, So to give you an example, there was a Swiss organization originally set up called Operation Libero that was relatively pro-free trade, but very also um, pro-refugee rights. And they had campaigned more around refugee and immigration in in Switzerland, but were increasingly working on on liberal trade issues, which made others in the network very uncomfortable. So Campact, for instance, was one of the key organizations in Germany and helped support other European organizations like Hüftet in Sweden to campaign against the Transatlantic Trade and Intellectual Property Agreement. Now, this was a big deal during 2014, 2015. It was one of the main things that a lot of progressives were campaigning on, right? This is just before Trump and Sanders shifted the debate, I know, in the US, but in the European space, progressives, politicians like the Social Democrats in Germany were on side with this big trade deal. And so then you had the sort of digital advocacy organizations trying to push their own center-left political parties to shift. How this all plays out within the network is that Operation Liberal, the Swiss organization, ended up leaving uh, the open network. And it wasn't only, there were other reasons for it leaving, but I think part of it was there was different conceptions of what it meant to be progressive, and they just weren't quite progressive enough for some in the network. That's interesting. One of the aspects of this that I'm curious about, just because of my own background, is the technology and the convergence around technology. Because when you have similar type organizations, you can often be supported by similar type tools. I've talked to Nathan Woodhull, who's been a guest on the podcast, who has an application called Control Shift, which he tells me is used in a lot of these instances. I've also been told that there's a lot of open source software that has kind of been built internally. Open source has its own challenges in managing it and keeping it up to date. What's your sense of how much shared tech there is and how much that matters in terms of enabling similar types of operations around the world? Yeah, so the story of shared tech, I think, is an important story of why these organizations came together, because it made sense early on for organizations to pool resources, right? If you're a small organization in New Zealand or in South Africa or in Poland, and you're just getting started, you don't have a lot of members, you don't have a lot of money, you certainly don't have stability, but you need the tech to run your campaigns. And then by joining this network, you can get access to a whole lot of things exactly like Nathan Woodhull's Control Shift Labs. So the the story of the tech collaborations is and was very important for the open network from the outset. And even when groups might have had political differences, the tech collaboration sometimes kept going. And I think Nathan is a great example of, of, of how that was sort of enabled because he, was, uh, he is an active member um, of a lot of the open summits. 
he goes along, he has really great conversations, listens to the activists sort of understanding what they need. And one of the examples that we can sort of see has diffused throughout all the open groups is online petition platforms that are enabling any individual to go and set up and start their own campaign. Now, these are pretty widespread now, but in the book, I sort of chart how all of these organizations from Hüftet in Sweden, Aksha Demokratia in Poland, Action Station in New Zealand, were able to set up these, these platforms precisely because of Nathan and the open network. And I think without that international collaboration, they wouldn't have each individually necessarily had the resources or would have taken them a lot longer to do so. And I should say that tech has been important for their model, right? Like it's not just that, okay, yeah, they have this petition platform, but it's it's integral to the model of saying we want to hand over power to our members to start the campaigns that they think are important. And they may be individuals or they may be organizations. And there's some great examples of various organizations hosting other organizations' campaigns that otherwise wouldn't have got off the ground because they were small, very issue-specific campaigns, say, to double the refugee quota in New Zealand, but took off thanks to those platforms. One of the tricky things, it seems to me, and, and something which you deal with in the book, is the question of like, how does an organization like this decide what to tackle and what positions to take and what things to try to change in society. You've mentioned like this idea that things can be member driven, but members can vary quite a bit. And staff may have strong ideology around where they want to go. I'm sure that each of these groups has slightly different versions of how they sort that out. What do you see there in that nexus? Mm. So Studying a network over five years was great because I saw this conversation play out, right? When you go and interview somebody on a one-off basis, you hear one version of it. But basically, I was embedded in many of these organizations over five years attending the summits. And a central tension that was playing out amongst these different organizations from 38 Degrees in the UK to move on to get up in Australia was, if we're purely member-driven, does that mean we're just reacting? to members' preferences and is a manifestation of that Brexit and Trump, right? Just to explain that a bit more. So while all of these groups in theory have progressive members, progressive members can have a wide range of views on topics like Brexit or trade negotiations. And in fact, 38 Degrees, when it polled its members in the UK about their stances on being pro or anti-Brexit, they found there wasn't a vast majority behind the UK staying in the EU. So 38 Degrees being member-driven said, okay, if we don't have the super clear staring, we're going to campaign independently and say we want to be neutral, get information out there for the referendum, but not take a stance. Meanwhile, their staff were very pro-Remain. Now, I, I talk about this example because it triggered quite a heated debate within the network because many said 38 degrees at that point in time should have been campaigning really hard to stay in the EU. This was such a pivotal decision. But because they were member-driven and because their interpretation of their members' interests, and we should say the Labour Party in the UK also had a similar problem where many of the Labour Party's members were also pro-Remain. So this wasn't an issue pertaining specifically to 38 degrees. It was an issue pertaining to Brexit and the politics of it. 
Now, what I saw happen around this time was a kind of deeper reflection in the network to say, well, if we're purely member-driven, are we going to get into these kinds of problems? Another example of it is on refugee rights. Many organizations in 2015 launched campaigns to try and increase the refugee quota in their country, whether it be Australia, New Zealand, the US, Canada. And they said, you know, there's so many refugees trying to flee Syria and all the various conflicts uh, in Northern Africa. But what happened is that those campaigns, while they were active for a couple of weeks, once members' interest dropped, the campaign would pivot to a different issue. And we saw this very clearly in 38 Degrees. And I actually have a quote in the book about how members cared about refugees for a bit, but then they wanted to save the bees. And saving the bees earned them more money. Now, obviously, bees are important, but the book's trying to say if we're super rapid response, we're super member-driven all of the time reacting, we lose the ability to shape members' preferences to like embed and follow up and implement long-term change. So what happened and what I look at in the book is how some organizations took a more stewardship-led model. And what I mean by that is that the staff said, actually, there's some issues we really care about. And regardless of our members' initial preferences or reaction, whether it be through surveys or through analytics and how they respond to our email, we are going to campaign on it. And it struck me that a number of these organizations were really concerned about minority rights in their context. So in New Zealand, Action Station put Maori rights at the center of their campaigning and said, we're going to make sure whatever happens, we work towards Maori rights. And if there are campaigns that at the beginning aren't getting a lot of support, we're going to keep going until we get it. We've seen now GetUp has its first Aboriginal heading the organization. Larissa Baldwin has come in in the last year And she's talked about how good campaigning is not about saying what's popular, it's making popular what needs to be said. So that's a direct quote from her. And that's exactly capturing that model. It's saying, we're not just going to react, we're going to try and shape what our members think is popular. And and to me, this is an ongoing live conversation about the role of the staff, how much can they change their members' preferences and on what issues and when should they sort of intervene or, or, or keep pushing? I mean, it really goes to core principles of political philosophy and democracy. And these are the questions of any kind of representation that you have. If you're a congressman from a certain district, do you do what you think is right? Do you do what your voters think is right? Which voters? These are tricky questions. And it's interesting to see people at the helms of digital organizations like Move On trying to figure it out. Completely. And I, to me, there's a whole lot of bigger debates that this is nestled in, right? Because obviously with digital technology, people are like, oh, we can have direct democracy. Anyone can have a voice. We're going to have more accountable, more representative. But yeah, who gets a voice and who is being heard and how do we understand campaigns for issues that are minority issues within a direct democracy. So there's a lot to unpack in this book, I think, beyond the organizations themselves. And part of the interest for me in writing the book is to focus in on a very unique set of cases, but to try and tease out what some of the broader implications are. When I've thought about it most is when uh, someone like MoveOn is deciding whether to endorse in a presidential primary. And particularly if they've chosen like they, a lot of times they'll survey their members 
but not every member will respond. They're representative maybe of an activist component of the electorate, but they're not totally representative of the electorate. But then if they endorse, they have a lot of throw weight, like like lots of organizations do. And so if they decide to go in for Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or stay out, that's consequential. And I think in a lot of cases, the you want it to be. And in other cases, they might make a wrong call. It's kind of like another additional primary that's going on yeah, in the U.S. Yeah. yeah, and I can see that in the U.S. context. And I think it's worthwhile just pointing out one thing around that, and that's move on has been really pivotal in many primaries and kind of campaign for Democrats. And that's something also that many of their sister organizations internationally have also been very powerful in political campaigns. So while a lot of the book talks more about issue-based like refugee trade and climate, I also highlight that, you know, Get Up in Australia has been one of the most politically powerful actors outside of political parties during election cycles and fundraise a lot. They helped to get Tony Abbott out of his seat in Sydney, so a former Australian prime minister who lost his seat in Warringah, and they were one of the key forces trying to convince voters to vote for somebody else. Lead Now in Canada, similar. So there's some other interesting parallels between these groups and the ways they have shared, actually, a lot of tactics around how to campaign during election cycles. What's the status of the open network right now? I understood that Ben, who had started that, had left and that he had typically, uh, and you said it, gone around and, and done a lot of advocating for the group. How's it doing? Is it on the decline? Sure. Well, um, so yeah, Ben did step back from his from his head um, of the network, and Giovanna Negretti, who's Puerto Rican American, had been very involved in campaigning for more diverse Latino candidates in in, in the U.S. She has, is now the CEO. She stepped up. Unfortunately for her, she started just before COVID hit. So I met her in 2019. I think it was when she'd just taken up the role would have been summer of 2019. And then six months later, everything shut down. Now for a digital network, you might think that doesn't matter so much. They were super fast during COVID at working online because they were already doing that. They were already using Zoom, Slack, all of these channels they'd been familiar with. But for the network, I think what's important is that face-to-face contacts were crucial. These were organizations that were meeting, sharing, failures, successes, stories of tech. And the best way that could happen was at the summits, which were face-to-face. They also had secondments. So people would go, say, from Sweden to New Zealand to help out during a New Zealand campaign or vice versa. And those obviously were much more difficult, if not impossible, during COVID. So COVID, I think, was really hard for the network because, as all of us know, in any institution, being able to talk through difficult issues in person is crucial to, to overcoming differences or just understanding where there might be energy or communal like ideas flowing. You need that in-person presence. They have come out of, as many of us, out of, out of the pandemic and they are still going and they've had lots of summits digitally and they had their first one in Barcelona last summit in person. And they're adding new members So there's a new Serbian organization. As I said, they've just had in the last uh, few weeks a summit, first summit of the Americas with a Brazilian organization, NOSAS, and a Colombian and a Mexican. I haven't met those two organizations since finishing the book. I haven't been as actively visiting all these places as I was a few years back. 
So I think one of the interesting questions for the organization is um, there's a tension between supporting existing members and saying, you know, we have some really strong, powerful organizations in our network, like Get Up in Australia, like Campact in Germany, like Move On. What are their needs and how do we support them? Versus how do we grow into new places? How do we support organizations in the global south? Like in Colombia, in Nepal, there was an organization that set up. And a lot of the global south organizations, which are startups, have different challenges and needs, obviously. And so that requires a lot of resources, a lot of mentoring, a lot of support. And I think that has been a tension throughout Open's time is how to divide between helping those organizations that are already out there and trying to set up new ones. And I think that that will continue to be probably quite a healthy tension within the network. Makes sense. Some countries, Europe, are doing a better job of regulating things around data and privacy and spam and opt-in emails and things like that than the U.S. and elsewhere. Do you see any sign that those kind of regulatory regimes are affecting online advocacy for the better or worse? So when GDPR came in, which was what you were referring to in the EU, a lot of the organizations lost a lot of members. It was a sort of a shock for the system because obviously what all of the organizations I study do is get members through recruiting through an online petition or somebody enters their email for something and then they become part of that organization's email list. And people can then be repeatedly emailed. And when you have to go back and say, actually, do you want to opt into this? You lose a lot of people. So on the downside, they lost a lot. But I think over the longer term, perhaps they got more active members. And I think the organizations themselves have shifted from just, oh, we want a massive email list to we want to make sure we have active members who are repeatedly engaging. So I don't have the stats on that. But my understanding of that situation is they probably, while their list shrunk, they were able to kind of reinvigorate and activate those members that they had. So you put a bunch of years into studying this and, as you say, embedding yourself. And then you write up this book. What was the reception? What has it led to for you to have a book out in this subject? Uh, it's been exciting. I've, I've really enjoyed it because reflecting with these organizations on their strengths and limits has been fascinating. I'd say there's been a couple of curiosities as I've presented and questions that come up. The first is, what's the right doing? This is all very well studying the left, but a lot of people are curious, given today's context, which was different from when I started the book in 2015, about how the right compares. So I'm actually working on an article with a couple of other scholars in, in Germany, looking at copycats, looking at cases where the right has tried to directly emulate the move-ons, the get-ups, the campax, and the avazas of the world. And, and there are a few examples. Citizen Go is probably the most powerful of all of the organizations. But what we've found is that most of the organizations on the right, while they do sort of multi-issue rapid response campaigning, they're not so member-driven. From what we can tell, the campaigning is more hierarchical top-down rather than trying to get members to start their own campaign. So most of these groups, the copycats on the right, don't have petition platforms where anyone can set up their own campaign. So that's one interesting element. The couple of other things I think that have been interesting is that the academic literature and international relations was just totally unaware of these organizations. So while a whole lot of your members, yourself, a lot of people working in political communications like David Karp have been studying and thinking about these organizations, the field that I'm in are like, 
what are, what, how do they work? What do you mean member driven? How do they get money? Like it's, it's like a 101 in digital campaigning, which for most of your listeners, you'd be like, yeah, this has been happening for years. Wake up and smell the coffee. So to me, it's been really fascinating trying to get a whole bunch of scholars understanding this model and also understanding transnational impacts. Because obviously Move On has campaigned powerfully as have its sister organizations on issues like the Iraq war, trade, climate change agreements. So there are also transnational impacts of what they do. And I think thirdly and lastly is the conversations I've had with the network themselves. And one of the points in the book that I tease out is that most of the campaigns that the open network runs are focused on national governments. So while they campaign on international issues, most of the time they do that through targeting, say, a prime minister or a minister or a, a domestic representative. And yet they're campaigning very frequently on transnational issues and in the context of having this really rich network. And so one of the conversations that's triggered is like, why do our collaborations not take other forms? Why don't we run more coordinated campaigns internationally? And one thing that the conversation is triggered as, oh, how could we connect our members, for instance, internationally? Because members of Move On don't not normally aren't aware that Move On is part of this broader network and they have sister organizations and a sort of sisters to an organization in South Africa like Amandla Mobi. So if Amandla Mobi raises a big issue around the right to accessing vaccines without a patent, as South Africa did, is there a role for Move On's members to act in solidarity with, with South Africa? So yeah, there's a lot that the books tease out and I've, I've really enjoyed all the kind of reflections and of course, positioning it within today's debate, which is obviously very different from, from six years ago. One thing that, that I spent a lot of time thinking and worrying about is, well, in the US, the, the sort of defense against right-wing authoritarian aspirations that Trump represented and others that he's allied with too. But obviously that same kind of analogous battle is happening in a lot of parts of the world and a lot of democracies, I don't know, backsliding or becoming more illiberal or contending with, with right-wing movements in ways that I'm certain you know a lot more about than I do. But how do you think these kind of groups like the move on analogs fit into that fight? And how do you think they match up against the sort of different ways that the right does organize and mobilize? Because maybe they don't have an Avaz or a, a move on totally successfully, but they do have lots of other online organizing structures that they maybe are ahead on if they're not ahead in the move on sort of way. How do you think about this sort of this sort of battle as I see it and how these orgs that you study fit in? So first of all, I would say the right is very powerfully organized, right? Both online and offline. And the article I mentioned previously is just looking at cases of direct emulation. So Citizen Go or in Australia, this group called Advance Australia that tried to copy GetUp. And Advance Australia isn't that strong, but that's not to say that the Australian right isn't well organized. And we could say the same in the US context, right? There's a lot of very, very strong political organizations. And in fact, some of the academic literature has suggested the right may even be better organized than the left, precisely because they're more hierarchical. This is work by Jen Schrady, 
And she's written a book, The Revolution That Wasn't, that looks at the right and the left, particularly in the North Carolina context around unions, and shows how hierarchies, divisions of labor are really important in digital organizing. Because if you're sort of grassroots and anyone can do anything, that actually doesn't result in effective strategic campaigning. So I do think placing the earlier comment I made in a broader context is important. Now, how it plays out is different in different countries. I know, I think around immigration and refugee rights, for a long time, for instance, Campact was finding it hard in Germany to push back against some of the, the right-wing campaigns. A very powerful campaign that I think a lot of organizations in my study struggled to push back against was against the Global Compact on Migration, which was a UN negotiations to try and set out some broad guiding principles for how we should manage migration policy internationally. But the right seized on it as the UN intervening in our sovereign right to determine our own migration policy, which the UN clearly was not doing, and it was states driving the negotiation. But the right was able to sort of hijack the entire frame of the debate and left many of the organizations, whether they be organizations like Move On, kind of going, oh my God, we didn't realize this was going to be a really political issue. And now we're kind of reacting at the last minute and too late. Um, that was one particular point in time. And I think now we're at a, a slightly different point in time. So it's very hard to kind of give you a, a, a kind of overview in all contexts because I think it's very issue specific. But I think some of the interesting questions are, what are the most effective strategies, you know, both in terms of what frames, tactics, also how should we be deplatforming? Should we be trying to get right-wing groups, you know, blocking bank accounts, naming and shaming? Should we be trying to send out more positive messaging and reframing the debate? I think these are all the sort of open questions that I'm sure many of your listeners and others are kind of thinking, how do we strategically outflank to the right? So where do you want to take your own research and work going forward. What is intriguing you? What are you following up on? Yeah, a couple of points. One is the power of kind of youth climate activism. So now when I present my book, some people are like, well, they were all very interesting, those organizations five, 10 years ago, but shouldn't we be looking now at Fridays for Future and Greta Thunberg or the Sunrise Movement internationally? and the ways that they're campaigning and mobilizing millions of people. So I'm working on a book with a colleague, Meta Alstrup San Giovanni. We'll be looking at these sorts of questions, um, being at, at what climate activists are doing, what's working, what isn't. And I would say in the book that I've just written, I do tease some of that out. And some of the groups like Move On have been important in supporting the youth climate activists behind the scenes. There's obviously been a lot of work to try and give them good platforms to, to campaign. The second piece is a slightly more theoretical piece, but it's asking questions about the legal form and the funding model of NGOs. Because for a long time in the literature that I'm embedded in, there's been an emphasis on NGOs as charities, right? And if you're a charity, you have often tax-free status or some kind of easier ability to collect donations without them being taxed but it means you can't engage in election campaigning, right? And organizations like Move On get around this by having a Move On pack. So they have both a 501c3 and a 501c4. Now, 
to me, that's really interesting, right? Like it's, it may seem obvious in the US context, you have some organizations that, you know, do the political campaigning, others that don't. But in a worldwide context in which there's increasing restrictions on NGOs and civil society, um, where, you know, more and more, you can't accept foreign funding, charity statuses are being revoked. I think it's really important to understand the different legal models that NGOs have, and the funding regimes or the, the funding models that they have. So I'm working on a piece that's kind of trying to understand the different ways and in different countries and contexts that NGOs and groups like Move On are registered legally and and how they fund themselves. Is there a question I haven't asked you that I should have? Oh, I mean, (laughs) I feel like I could talk for years about these groups or at least for a few more hours, maybe not years, but no, I think, I think this has covered most of it. I, I guess the main thing I'd want your listeners to reflect on is kind of how all of the conversations you have in the US ripple out and kind of affect what's happening internationally, but also how international innovations ripple back in. Because certainly for me, one of the interesting findings of of my work in the last five years was at real times of need when the US, like during the Trump years, was like, oh my God, is Trump going to go to war with North Korea? Move on actually looked for international allies and actively said, "We, we need help and support to try and stop. Trump if this happens. So to me, there's a real importance of keeping kind of a broad awareness of how progressive groups are campaigning internationally, as well as a real interest and solidarity in in supporting other campaigns internationally. Well, I really appreciate the time that you've taken to talk to me about this today. Is there anything else you want to say? No, that's all. Thanks so much to you for hosting me on the program. It's been lovely to chat with you and look forward to further conversations. And please, to all your listeners, feel free to reach out. I'm always happy to to have a chat. If you've got interest about the book, you can purchase it online at Oxford University Press, or you can read an excerpt for free. Uh, Stanford Social Innovation Review has an excerpt of it on their website. Tremendous. That was Nina Hall. She is Nina WTH on Twitter. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.